humanitarian. We don't know what the future of the humanitarian sector looks like. But no matter where we end up, I'm fairly sure that this week's guest on True Humanitarian Jazz O'Hara and the worldwide tribe she founded will be part of it. The thinking underpinning the tribe is simple. All you need is the world and people and love. And with that simple, compelling point of view, Jazz applies all of her talent and creativity to telling stories about people on the move to the more than 100,000 members of the tribe. She does so with great empathy and respect for everybody she meets and with an instinctive and awesome sense of aesthetics. If you're not familiar with the work of the tribe, I'd encourage you to check it out on their website and listen to the podcast Jazz launched recently. It's a wonderful contribution and a great listen. The striking thing about the tribe is the fluidity with which it operates and the way that Jazz talks about the journey she's on. And I'm not just talking about social media and communication here. That's very much a generational issue. I realize that. But the instinctive honesty, learning and authenticity of her approach is compelling. If you are a humanitarian technocrat like I am in many ways, your first instinct may be to write off the worldwide tribe as a marginal, cute, nice phenomenon that won't really reshape humanitarian outcomes or achieve impact at scale. If that's how you feel after having listened to the conversation, I'd encourage you to listen one more time, because I think you got that wrong. So enjoy the conversation. Jess O'Hara, welcome to True Humanitarian. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. It's great to be in touch with you again. We met a couple of years ago, and I learned a bit about the fascinating work you're doing with the, the Worldwide Tribe. Why, why don't you tell the story about how you founded the tribe and, and what that is all about? Okay, I'll go from the beginning. It's a good story. So sit back and uh, give me a sec to cast my mind back to 2015 when it all began. So yeah, it was actually just over five years ago, Lars, that is uh, that everything started for me. And it was quite a life-changing moment, actually, that happened because I was working in the fashion industry before I worked in the humanitarian sector. Um, I worked in London for an underwear brand. I was a designer and I had no experience of the humanitarian sector at all. It was not something that I yeah, had even dabbled in. Um, but what happened was um, something very, very, it was a, there was a clear course of events, right? So my mum and dad were going through the adoption process. They had four children already. I was the oldest of four. And my youngest brother was turning 18. So he was about to leave home to go to university. And my mum and dad, I think, were very fearful of having an empty house, right? They'd always had this big, full house of loads of kids and they were keen to take on another child. They weren't ready for that empty house yet. Um, little did they know what would happen. So they were, they were scared about having an empty house, having no more kids at home, and they wanted to take on another child. So they went through the process with the local council and they were open to a child who was older, who was a boy who didn't speak English. And these are things that lots of prospective families don't want, right? Um, and it looked very likely that my mum and dad would be taking on a child who was coming via the Calais jungle which at the time was a refugee camp that not many people in the UK knew about. And if they did know about it, it wasn't anything positive. It was, you know, 
swarms of migrants and marauding migrants and those kind of headlines that we were seeing in the news about the Calais jungle. So my mum and dad then finally got to the end of the process and adopted a boy from Eritrea called Mez. Um, he became my little brother in the summer of 2015. And not long afterwards, I was actually in a queue at the bank, right? And um, I, he I heard these women in front of me in the bank having a conversation about Calais, about this camp, and they were talking about it. I think my phone must have run out of battery or I was bored or something because I was listening to their conversation. And they were talking about Calais. They were talking about how there were people running around with knives, how dangerous it was, how dreadful it was that all of these people wanted to come to the UK. And I knew that they were talking about people like my little brother, right? My new little brother, Mez, this kid, this scared, vulnerable little kid who had been through so much to get to the UK and I felt so frustrated by that narrative that they were talking about but I didn't have the information really to contradict them to interject in their conversation I didn't have the courage to either and I walked out of the bank frustrated and really feeling like I wanted to challenge them but I didn't have the words or the knowledge and the first-hand experience so I decided in that moment that I wanted to go to Calais, that I wanted to make that journey to the camp. And three days later, I remember it was a Tuesday, I took the day off work and I made the journey. Now my mum and dad live in Kent, it's not far away. It took me, you know, less than an hour to get to Folkestone, 40 minutes on the, on the train and you're there. And I'd been very, I was very naive in that, those early stages. I didn't really know what I was doing. I, thought about what people might need or want and I filled my car with you know bits of food that I thought I, you know people might be hungry some some warm clothing I really didn't know what to expect or what I would find and I remember lots of people telling me you can't just go to a refugee camp you can't just turn up there so I just thought you know well what have I got to lose I'll give it a try I'll see what happens worst comes to worst I come back home Anyway, turns out in the Calais jungle, you can just go because it wasn't an official refugee camp. It was essentially a slum or a, an informal settlement, tents in the mud, you know, no one really seeing who was coming in or who was coming out. People just arriving, pitching up their tents and hoping to not spend too much time there, right? They wanted to hopefully continue their journeys to the UK. So as soon as I got out of my car, I was met by an Afghan guy who became a good friend of mine, Sikander. And he said to me, oh, you, you look like you're new here. You look like you haven't been here before. I was like, yeah, you're right. I haven't. So he gave me a little tour of the area. He took me to his tent. He made me a cup of tea over a, an open fire you know, and he was very welcoming and he was very kind. And I think that that was what struck me the most that day. Not the fact that there were about 2000 people sleeping in tents in the mud. Of course, that was super shocking. But what was most shocking and what sat with me most uncomfortably is the fact that people were sitting there, that, that people were welcoming and kind and that they were so misrepresented by our UK media. Uh, so... What happened after that was that I went home feeling very confused about the fact that it was so easy for me to 
get back to the UK in the comfort of my car with the power of this little book that I happened to possess. And all of these people that I'd met that day who had told me their stories and I chatted to um, were telling me that they were trying to make these same journeys and that they were risking their lives to do so. So I wrote a Facebook post actually about that first initial experience that went on to go very viral. And that really was the beginning of the Worldwide Tribe. It was very unexpected. Uh, it was very organic how it happened. Um, and it happened pretty much overnight. So that next morning I went to work and uh, looked at my phone that morning. And it was very overwhelming the amount of people that had responded to this account of my journey to Calais. And in that post, I'd written that people, you know, they did need tents and sleeping bags and they were cold at night and that they were hungry during the day and that their basic needs were not being met. And people, Lars, honestly, they responded in their thousands. It was really incredible. We had, you know, literally thousands of people contacting us, collecting donations of tents, sleeping bags, physical stuff, really. And very, very quickly, we had warehouses across the UK, across Europe, of people kind of collecting stuff in their own locations. Um, we were trying to kind of organize this. I mean, I'm jumping a few steps, but very quickly we were trying to organize this logistical nightmare, really, of trying to get these things that people wanted to donate in Europe to the people in Calais who needed it. And it was a massive challenge. And, you know, we were overwhelmed. We had yeah, as I say, about seven warehouses in London, so many people wanting to get involved. What had happened is I'd actually thought that that initial post would only go out to my friends and family. So I'd put my address in it and said to people, you know, drop stuff off here at my mum and dad's house. Or if you're in London, drop it off here at my brother's house in Brixton. My brother's housemate had to move out because they were just inundated, just temporarily, but inundated with people arriving to the door with, you know, warm clothing and like care packages and notes that they'd pinned to jumpers saying like, we care about you. We don't prescribe to this, this narrative that the media is feeding us. And it was just absolutely incredible and overwhelming, the response that we had to that first post. And suddenly I felt like I was kind of responsible for getting this stuff to the people in the camp. And it, as I say, it was a, a task and it was overwhelming, but I felt like it was something that I truly, truly believed in and that I cared about and that I was passionate about and I couldn't get the, the hours back when I was at work and very soon after that I quit my job and I moved back to my mum and dad's house slash to Calais and I focused just 24-7 on making the situation in the campus dignified as I possibly could for the people that lived there, you know, together with the people that lived there, talking to them about needs, trying to meet those needs, using social media to do so. Social media was a really, really incredible tool for us. It was Instagram, Facebook, where people would share. And, you know, if any need that we had, we'd put it out on social media. You know, we need blankets. People are cold. And it was incredible the way that people responded. Anyway, what I realized very quickly was that, yes, you can hand out tents, you can hand out sleeping bags, but it's kind of never ending. And actually, however many tents and sleeping bags that you do distribute, you're not getting to the core of the problem. You're not getting to the root. And that there's still women, like those women in the bank, thinking the way that they think about the people in Calais. And then there's still people like my little brother living in Calais. And those two realities do not match up. 
right? And that is where the Worldwide Tribe sits. That was the mission and is the mission to try and bring those two worlds together and try and raise awareness and tell those stories of people like my brother to try and encourage empathy, understanding. So I started to write daily on Facebook about the people that I was meeting, the friends that I was making in the camps and make films. You know, we started to document everything that we could through social media again. And most recently, you know, that's taken the form of a podcast in the last year and a half. The Worldwide Tribe podcast has been sharing stories of these individuals that I've met along the way. Each episode is an incredible story of an inspirational, heroic journey that somebody's made. And yeah, it's really been about amplifying these voices and, and, and that's been through various ways, talks and schools and universities, but it's been a five year roller coaster, really, and lots has changed along the way. And your podcast is fantastic. I, I listened to quite a few of the episodes and I, it's, there's such a, a depth in the connection you have with the people you interview and you hear the wisdom and, and uh, the patience and the love coming out of, of, of those experiences. And it's, it really is a, it's a wonderful contribution. And I'd like to talk more to you about the storytelling, the, the influencing the way people think uh, about immigrants, the narrative, if you want. But, but maybe we can just go back because you, you described two things, right? You go there, you see the horrible situation, and you collect some tents and some blankets and you give them to people. So the whole idea of of giving stuff, right? Of of helping people directly rather than just telling stories about them. How did that how did that component of the worldwide tribe evolve? Because you 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 know, do you still run seven warehouses in London? No. No. And, you know, for me, that was a short term solution at the time. And I recognized, Lars, that that wasn't where my skills lay, you know, like actually there were people that were doing that better. And at the time, there wasn't. At the time in Calais, there was no one, no Save the Children, no big NGOs working on the ground, even though there were children there on their own. You know, they absolutely were not there in the camp there was not even grassroots organizations. There was no one. I met one French lady, one French volunteer, Maya, who was local to Calais and she had been supporting refugees in the area for a long time. But that first trip, I didn't meet any volunteers or NGOs or anyone working in the camp. And I really expected, you know, that in this situation, in these circumstances, that they would be there, that there would be big organizations just meeting those, as I say, like basic needs. But because this was an informal settlement, it wasn't an official refugee camp that didn't exist there. And these people lived with very, very little support, no support, really. Um, So, yeah, it was a kind of short term solution, tents, sleeping bags, warm clothing, you know, socks, hygiene stuff, you know, whatever it was um, and and, and shelter. Um, But then over time, quite quickly, actually, over not too much time, more and more, as more people arrived in Calais, more and more grassroots groups would pop up and people like Help Refugees, Care for Calais, Refugee Community Kitchen, people started to find their niche and started to focus on, these groups started to focus on different things. Refugee Community Kitchen were doing food, uh, you know, Help Refugees were building shelters. And what I realized 
that was important for me to focus on was these stories of people. It was answering these questions that I had when I first went to the camp, things like, why are people there? Why do they want to come to the UK? What happened to them in their own country? What's life like in the camp? All these things that people were asking on social media. It was answering those questions that I felt like was actually getting to the core. Because if we could change general opinion in the UK and maybe that would filter up to policy and then maybe this camp didn't even need to be there at all. How many people are in the tribe? How big is your tribe? It's a good question. So I would say we are a community online um, on social media. So I think the Worldwide Tribe has a combined following of about 100,000 people across all social channels. Um, but in terms of kind of organization over the years, you know, it's been a very kind of haphazard whoever I can get on board to help me at different times comes on board for short periods and um, everything's volunteer led um, but at the moment you know it's it, I would I'm the driving force um, and I have some amazing people around me who help me with certain things like the website or um, design work and things like that but yeah I would say that the tribe is an umbrella term for lots and lots of people who care about refugees and that makes up about 100,000 people. And, and who are they? Are they young people like yourself? Are they mainly women? Seventy-five percent women on our social media, which is interesting to me. And actually, I've heard that across the board in lots of kind of similar humanitarian or refugee-related groups that you kind of see that spread, which is interesting because yeah, I actually work with a lot of guys. I post about a lot of guys. I don't really know why that is. Um, I haven't got to the bottom of that. But yeah, I would say that they're mainly Europe, UK, Europe focused or cent centric um, women who care and want to are interested in, in finding out more and what and also what they can do. Uh, so I guess potentially similar to me. Um, at least that's probably where it started. So you have a hundred thousand, uh, and then it's kind of expanded from there. Who follow you, listen to your stories on the podcast, read your your blog post or, or, or Facebook updates, or and then apart from them clicking like, what do they do? Well, that is a good question, and it's something that is unique to each of those a hundred thousand people right? People always ask me, how can I help? And I'm like, well, I don't know, you tell me. Because each of us have something unique to give. And I do provide those options. And I do make them clear. I do have lots of call to action, you know, off the back of each post. And it depends on the, what the post is about. So, you know, you can donate if you have money, you can volunteer if you have time, you can share a post if you don't have either of those things, you can start a conversation, you can fundraise. But maybe for you, it looks different. Maybe in your local area, you know that there's a refugee family down the road from you. Or maybe it's not even a refugee family, maybe it's a new family to your village that have come from another country or another town and that they need a welcoming ear or someone to show them around you know it looks different for everybody and that's what's really important I think is that this is a movement of people taking action in their own way and it's about looking inside and thinking about 
what is it that I have to give? You know, I can, I can give you a starting point, maybe a, a little nugget of inspiration, but it can, it, that has to come from within and what feels right to you. And absolutely there is something there for everybody. I remember when we, when we first met, um, and I was trying to understand what you were doing. I asked you, so do you have like a strategy? And you answered, yeah, I guess I have to update my brand Bible. <laughs> and I had just never heard about a brand Bible before. And, and I found that utterly interesting. And, and it's when you, when I look at your website and you uh, listen to your podcast and, and it's so uber cool, right? It, it is so fantastically well-designed and, and the aesthetics are just stunning. And the result is that the people you portray, you really see them as individuals. You really show these wonderful people that you come across and you can feel the, the passion that you have for these people. But I was also thinking when I looked at it, I've, I've seen that in refugee camps. I've seen that in terrible settings, the beauty and, and the humanity that you come across. And I think that is what moves many of us to, to be in this field. But you also see some ugly stuff. You see some difficult things. And if you want, the mainstream organizations have a tendency to focus on some of these tragic aspects, uh, often also for fundraising purposes. Mm -hmm. And you seem to make the opposite choice. So what, what is your thinking around aesthetics, portraying the beauty? The Does it have to be cool? Uh, should you show some of the more difficult things as well that must be there? What What's your thinking around that? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that because it's interesting for me to hear you remind me of that from all those years ago when I was maybe a little bit more in the headspace of my days before the Worldwide Tribe and still in like brand mode because now I don't think that I think about it in that way anymore and that it's not a brand, but I do think that what the brand Bible essentially, what I was looking for there and what I was referring to was making sure that we were clear on our messaging, clear on our purpose, clear on our vision, those things that like you do define as a brand, you know, like what's our goal, what's our mission statement, what kind of wording, what kind of aesthetic. You're absolutely right. And I think I made the conscious de decision quite early on to focus on the positive, focus on the uplifting, focus on the inspirational, because that was what was coming through time and time again. When I was in these camps, it was the person who had had a falafel restaurant in their own city and that they'd made a falafel stand in the camp and that it was entrepreneurial. People were entrepreneurial and resilient. And even though I don't really like that word because it kind of, you know, means that they've experienced suffering, but it was true that that was what came through and I didn't want to under mine or underplay what these people had were doing and how they were living because it was incredible over and over again and it was these stories of overcoming adversity and how much people can actually go through and those were the stories that connected with me and those were the stories that I think resonated with the people who followed or, or were part of the tribe and also those were the stories that we weren't really hearing in the news you know you hear a lot of doom and gloom and death and destruction and negativity in the news so I think it was a conscious effort to counteract that definitely and I guess I could talk about that in terms of something very recently to bring it up to date I've just got back in the last couple of days from Beirut 
And uh, the situation in Beirut right now is very different from when I was there last year. So obviously last year it was pre-corona, pre-COVID, pre this explosion. And also in the last year, Lebanon has been through an devastating economic crisis and a crash which has meant that you know my dollar last year would have got me 1,500 Lebanese pounds now it got me 8,000 Lebanese pounds so it was unbelievable uh, the amount that their economy has been affected just in the last year less than a year so they've really had a string of devastation in Beirut and it was a very different city from when I was there last year Last year, you know, it was a hub of like nightlife and bars and restaurants and people having fun, sitting out on the streets and eating good food and smoking shisha and just, it was alive. And, and this year it felt very different. And before I went back this year, I was talking a lot about the fact that I was going to Beirut. I was fundraising for a group on the ground that we support there. And to try and fundraise for them, I was sharing stories of the explosion and the impact that it had had. And I was talking about people who had lost their legs or they'd you know lost their homes or they'd lost their lives that's the kind of thing that I was talking about and I was posting pictures of beautiful buildings that had been destroyed and when I actually got there I realized that I got it all wrong that I, I'd completely fucked up on my communications about Beirut that actually when I was there all that I wanted to focus on was this incredible grassroots response in Beirut of young people. It reminded me very much of 2015 and the response to the refugee crisis in Europe, getting together and using their resources and rebuilding their city. And the energy was incredible, the positivity, the resilience, it was just overwhelming. And I realized that posting pictures of broken stuff is not what the World Wide Tribe is about. And Actually, that was not what was important when I was there. It was just incredible to see these people coming together to help each other within their communities and connecting through something that was out of their control. And it brought people together and it was an energy again that I was just totally inspired by. And I came back uplifted and it, as I say, inspired and overwhelmed and apologetic to the people of Beirut for getting it wrong before I got there. Fantastic. So uh, <laughs> that, that's just such a wonderful reflection. And I think I lived in Zimbabwe for four years and uh, during a very difficult time uh, for that country as well. And I, we, we sometimes, um, from ACAP side, write reports about that part of the world, and you read the reports and think this is terrible, but then you remember what that country actually is about. You remember the people and the resilience, and and I think the distance we have to things sometimes, we, we sort of fall into that preconceived ideas of, of, of what people are like in a crisis, and, and we forget that they're still people. Mm. You say you engage with grassroots uh, organizations in, in Beirut mm -hmm. and, and you somehow uh, collect money for them and, and pass them on. So the, the technocrat in me, of course, has the question, how does she do that when she's on, on, on her own? How, 
how does a one-woman army uh, manage a partnership with local grassroots organizations in Beirut? It's, it's a lot of ad- administration there. How, how do you do that? So I went there last year and I spent some time getting to know lots of groups on the ground. And the same this year, actually, I made it my mission to go and chat to as many people as possible, spend some time seeing what they're doing, following their operations, connecting with them, understanding their needs. Lots of people in Beirut right now need volunteers. They need people to come from outside to actually support with manpower and hands and you know energy on the on the ground um but also of course they need funds and what i usually do is follow my instinct and uh connect with groups that i really feel are doing incredible work so for example whilst in beirut this time i actually connected with an incredible group called this is lebanon who are working with the domestic workers in lebanon who i guess were the most affected or some of the most affected by the string of events that's happened there because essentially you know if the middle class of Lebanon are now you know struggling to survive and struggling to feed their families and struggling to live what about the people that were struggling before all this happened you know the people essentially at the bottom of that pile the refugees in the city the domestic workers that uh, many of whom come under this system of sponsorship called the kafala system they're sponsored by a family in lebanon to work for them as a domestic worker as a maid as a um in in house and they're often not paid it's modern day slavery in in many many cases and you know lots of them have been thrown out of the houses that they were living in uh, and left outside their embassies um because lebanese families are not able to even house or clothe or feed them anymore So um, they, you know, uh, the most, the people that were most vulnerable before are even more vulnerable now, right? And so I spent some incredible days with a group called This Is Lebanon who support these women um, and try to get them back home, try and repatriate them, working with their embassies. And in the meantime, looking after their needs putting them into paying rent for them to stay in these accommodations, just one bedroom apartments with lots of girls packed in whilst they wait to go home, um, but also paying for their food and things like that. And, you know, I I really feel like I got an insight into what they're doing and and how incredibly they're doing it. And these grassroots groups are, it is often very transparent, you know, it is a case of like, this is what we need and we, people respond quickly and no one's getting paid and it goes directly to the people that need it. There's a lot less bureaucracy and hoops to jump through. So actually, I identify the groups that I feel like are doing incredible work on the ground with the people there that need it the most and then connect with them and then write about them and fundraise back here in the UK through my writing, through the podcast um, and, and through our fundraising groups. We have pages, we have pots for different organizations. When I write about them, I direct people to the right fundraiser and then I transfer them the cash. It's, it's quite, it's pretty simple. <laughs> and, and in terms of, how much money are you able to raise this way? It depends, Lars, it depends. Like when things are on people's minds and agendas, for example, you know, in the, in the initial couple of weeks after the Beirut explosion, we raised, we raised about 5,000 pounds for Beirut, um, but it very quickly moved from people's minds. It very quickly passed our news 
from our news agenda and that makes it difficult then that makes it harder to engage people and continue to engage people so then it's more of an uphill slog but if you know something is in our news and you're directing you're you're responding directly then that can be easier because you know in the past we've that initial fundraiser back in 2015 for the Calais jungle we raised like a quarter of a million pounds in like a matter of like a few days and that was crowdfunding through this amazing community um so yeah it depends and it's getting more difficult definitely as people get fatigued with stories and and the refugee crisis is something that we've been hearing about for many years now um so it gets harder but i'm still at it <laughs> I think you when I when I met you I, I immediately thought here this is the future this is the next generation of humanitarian organizations and this is a cool project that speaks to a different uh, generation and obviously can move some things How do you see us How do you see the the big aid the humanitarian establishment whatever you want to call it what what are we Honestly, I feel like lots of those big NGOs, you know, I'd love to work more closely. I I think that if there was a bridge between the humanitarian the um grassroots groups and the larger players in the humanitarian space that there would be great power in people connecting, but I often feel that they're a bit impenetrable and difficult to find the right person to do what you want to do and so big and uh slow to react from my experience in Europe you know there were a lot of gaps um that needed to be filled by grassroots groups and local people for example on on Lesbos you know people were arriving to the shores on boats and they needed humanitarian assistance and the 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 big NGOs they were not there for a long time it took a long time for them to be able to actually set themselves up there you know um and in Calais still there's there's no one no none of those big names that you would hear about and that you would know about working in Calais so yeah at times disappointing i guess that i had this idea of like if there's if there's a humanitarian crisis that's when these agencies you know come into their own but then i have to say I have learned a lot over the years as well and at the end of last year I spent some time in Bangladesh um working with the Rohingya and there I saw how effective large organizations can be and that the UNHCR is doing incredible work there and that the camps are much more formal and managed by larger NGOs and the same in Jordan for example um I've been to Zatari and to um Azraq camp there that are both very run they run in a very different capacity and in a different way from these kind of informal settlements that I'm talking about in Europe like Calais like Lesbos um yeah and and like Beirut too I guess um they're much more informal around Beirut um lots of Syrian camps and even Palestinian camps in Beirut that yeah are not not UNHCR branded everywhere they look very different But if you had a wish and you could get the big system to do something for the worldwide tribe and and the people you you serve what would that be? What do you actually want? 
I'd like to actually work with them on communications and have their reach, but tell the stories of the people that I meet and that I know. Uh, yeah, I think, as you said previously, that sometimes communications um, within these bigger charities, NGOs, focus on those, on the pain and and the needs and you know i'm sure that that does that is effective in in raising money um but i think that we need to move on from that now and we need to stop painting people as victims and we need to see ourselves in in these people and if they're you know looking very different from us and like you said looking hungry or sad or with flies around them then that's not something that we can relate to right and actually when I meet people, these are people, these are people, and I can relate to everybody that I meet. And I know that in the same situation, I would act exactly the same. And that's what I try and highlight is that there's so, there's so much shared humanity there that I can connect with anybody. And also, you know, if we're different, it's the celebration of those differences. It's the fact that these differences are beautiful and that we learn from each other and that we've got a lot to gain from embracing these differences and and welcome being welcoming to them and not fearful i was thinking maybe you should run a class for some of the communication guys from the big organizations maybe that could be a fundraising activity for you cool maybe you can help me let's make yeah, it happen <laughs> exactly. um the thing that really struck me uh, we haven't spoken for a couple of years and and what really struck me in, in, in talking to you now is how much your thinking has evolved and, and the constant learning that you, you're having and, and the way you are, you're very agile in the way you, you sort of develop the tribe. So, so where are you in five years? What, what's the tribe in five years from now? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Take a wild guess. Take a wild guess. Yes. Well, I hope that what I want to get to is a place where we are not using terminology like refugees and asylum seekers and illegal immigrants and these things. And we are just connecting beyond all of those things that might divide us, race, religion, nationality, gender, all of those things and, and, and recognizing ourselves in, in each other beyond all of that. And I think that we live in an age where that's possible with social media, with, you know, the internet, we can connect with these with, with people from all over the world so easily. So I'd really like to be living in a world in five years time where we have a politics of, of empathy and understanding. And I hope that the worldwide tribe can be instrumental in that. Um, but yeah, I mean, as you say, I kind of take things as they come. And I have learned over these five years that all I can do, I think my biggest learning is to do my best at that time until I know better. And then when I know better, I can do better. Uh, and it is a constant learning. It's a constant progression. And I'm very open to that. I'm very open to being called out, to listening to people, to being like, okay, yeah, you're right. Like, I think I can do it. I can do it better. But at least, you know, I'm doing something. And I think that we live in a space of a time where there is a lot of fear of being called out, saying the wrong thing, doing it wrong. And actually it's so important to just to just do and if you do do it wrong put your hands up and say like i was wrong but i'll do it better next time jess you're such an inspiration you do fantastic work with the tribe 
thank you so much for taking time to come on the podcast and, and all the best for your future work. You are so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's about the rights and the freedom to be for people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each who will lead. Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate. And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. For the truth, you've been warned. Humanitarian. <laughs>